Hello from Inspire Legal at New York Law School in New York City, New York. I'm Lawrence Coletti. I'm Mark Yakano. And I'm Hari Osofsky. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. We're at Inspire Legal here in New York City, New York. And uh, it's been quite a day already. We've uh, gotten to talk with a lot of great people. It's been a very interactive experience. And I have two great guests joining me today. So I want to introduce them in turn. Mark Yakino, where do you work? What do you do? I'm the global practice leader uh, for managed legal services at Major Lindsay in Africa, which is a relatively young advisory part of uh, MLA, which is known historically for executive search in the legal space. You've been a sponsor of one of our podcasts, actually, Above the Law, Thinking Like a Lawyer with Ellie and Joe. I did a podcast with Ian Cornett. Okay. Well, no, but you actually do sponsor our podcast, or have. Well, I'm happy to support you. Thank you. Thank you. And next, we have Dean Hari Osofsky. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, where are you the dean? I'm the dean of Penn State Law and the School of International Affairs in University Park. It's one of Penn State's two law schools. Excellent, excellent. So you all were at a, it's called an unpanel. We got that defined by Christian Lang earlier today, and it was titled, How Will Technology Impact the Makeup of Law Firms? So uh, Dean, you were one of the panelists, and Mark, you were one of the attendees. I was. Okay, so let's do the uh, 50,000 foot. What was the general idea? So I think the 50,000 foot of, of what the panel was trying to get at was the changing nature of legal practice, in part due to technology and in part due to a whole variety of other economic and other factors, um, and really asking, does our model of how we think about lawyers and non-lawyers need to change, and does the way we regulate the profession in the United States need to change as a consequence? I agree. It was less about technology per se and more about what the law firm ecosystem and legal services delivery ecosystem looks like and how that's being impacted, what are driving forces of change within the law, and why is the discussion so acute right now? So I was in there for a few minutes, and all of a sudden it went to artificial intelligence. Admittedly, I kind of checked out. So I understand the discussion evolved. And so there was, uh, there was some discussion about role of non-lawyer partners. So absolutely. So I think the the key question, and this is where the artificial intelligence piece comes in, is is as we increasingly have technology tools that can automate pieces of legal services that couldn't be automated before, what does that mean about what lawyers do and who else you need as part of legal practice? And so a key point of discussion is what is the role of lawyers in the evolving law firm? What is the role of non-lawyers in the evolving law firm? And then, you know, I think a a, a question underneath that is how should we be training students in law schools and more broadly in universities to have the sets of skills that are needed for this evolving legal marketplace? I think that's absolutely dead on. And I think the question we really didn't get to is the ability of what I'd call current in-generation and current next generation lawyers to play different roles and evolving roles. The discussion at one point, in my view, kind of got binary in whether lawyers were the best people to optimize technology. And I think that was um, too limited a question because we know from our role in the legal technology world that companies like Neota Logic are out there working actively with law schools and law students are developing apps to make, you know, 
pro bono work more accessible, to do certain tasks more efficiency. Law firms are having hackathons with their young lawyers and creating apps and technology things. So I think that the discussion ended up being a little too binary is the way the question was framed. And we never got to how to train and what the elements of creating that next-gen lawyer is. Right. And that was actually a question I was asking in the panel as well. Um, Obviously, I come from the perspective of trying to train the next generation of, of lawyers and also legal professionals who may or may not be lawyers. And so, you know, as we've talked about a little bit, you know, what we're trying to do in pilots like the Legal Tech Virtual Lab at Penn State Law and the partnership we have in engineering, where we're creating programs, educational programs, where engineers can learn a little about law and lawyers can learn a little bit about engineering, you know, and and partnerships between lawyers and engineers. I think, you know, I was also, I mean, it sounds like you've gotten two people on the podcast who have a a similar perspective, which is that, you know, I, I do think there are more creative ways to think about how we train people rather than putting people in the separated boxes. That's interesting. So, you know, the the uh, the crossover training to uh, evolve how we perform our jobs as lawyers, how we represent clients, you know, the, getting the technology in there, adding the extra horsepower. It's really fascinating because, you know, when I, when I went through law school, I do remember the very non-technological emphasis of that. A lot of very cerebral people that didn't have a lot of interest in spreadsheets and just kind of basic things we sort of take for granted. Uh, just a few years later. And so as an educator, Dean, you know, uh, with the engineering program getting involved, I mean, what are some of the the new ideas coming out of that uh, that partnering of the two different programs? So in the law policy and engineering space, what we're really trying to do is, is think a lot more broadly than people typically think about that intersection, right? Most people think of it as patent law. But we had our first joint symposium on election security. We have our first research partnership on autonomous vehicles. We're doing another one in biotech. And, and the idea is that there's a whole set of problems where you need engineering and legal knowledge to come together to actually do good problem solving. Similarly, I think when you start to think about what does it mean to train lawyers for this changing environment, I mean, increasingly, it's part of the duty of competence to have some knowledge of technology and legal technology for a lawyer. And so one of the things that was really interesting is when we first started the Legal Tech Virtual Lab, which is you know premised on the idea that artificial intelligence and machine learning, 3D printing, blockchain, cryptocurrency are fundamentally transforming the practice of law and raising big legal issues. As we first started to partner with legal tech and law firms and, and develop this, you know, our, our first instinct was you know, to do pop-ups with AI-powered new tools. But what we began to realize is when you start to think about the technology skills that lawyers need, it starts with really basic things like how to use Microsoft Office. And so one of our partnerships now is with Preseritas, a tech assessment tool that we're integrating into some of our courses and individually to think about you know, how do you assess what technology skills law students come in with and then help them bridge the gap so that they're prepared to lead when they go into practice. And what are you seeing? I mean, what's your what's your impression there? I mean, they're coming out of undergrad and obviously they've been exposed to something, but when they're coming into the law program, how deficient are they compared to maybe the engineering discipline? So, you know, it really varies. One of the things that I've really tried to encourage is for STEM students, law is actually a really good pathway, right? If you, if you combine a STEM background with a legal background, you can then do a lot of this kind of problem solving we were just talking about. So there, there are some students who are gonna come in with a really strong technology background. There are some students who are gonna have limited exposure to technology. And one of the interesting things that we've been learning is, you know, as a parent of a 14 year old who could tell you in a lot of depth why my technology skills are not where they should be. You know, he codes in five languages, et cetera. You know, 
we think because our students are increasingly digital natives, which of course my generation was the cusp generation, but weren't digital natives, we, we think that that means that they're going to know how to use technology. But it turns out being a digital native doesn't mean you know how to use Office in a way that a law firm's going to need you to, to know how to use it. So that's part of why you have to think across you know, those skills, e-discovery, and then how to use the cutting edge AI tools and could these new associates be the people who help their law firms integrate them? I think that's absolutely the case. And if you look at firm models of having less administrative people, less quote, secretaries as they used to call them, then it makes the imperative for associates and attorneys to be conversant with the Microsoft Office uh, suite of tools and very conversant because they're not going to be able to delegate it out to somebody to do. At the same time, as the legal field industrializes, this is the way I like to call it, it's always been portrayed as a craft but the client pressures to streamline their business as a whole are forcing the legal industry to industrialize and to apply business discipline, applying concepts. But the one thing that's sort of been taken, created is this myth that technology is cryptically unavailable to lawyers to understand. When in reality, if you go get five or six different platforms that businesses use in the legal space, it's no code technology. People with no computer science background can be building apps and creating processes. So the level of awareness as to what technology is accessible and what basic technology may not seem glamorous but is imperative, like using Word, Excel, PowerPoint, because the, um, the firm cost structure is not going to support those people doing those particular things for you. I want to migrate our conversation into the ownership structure. Obviously, this is where a law firm will have ownership that is somebody or an entity that is non-legal, so a non-lawyer owning a, a you know, a law firm or, or some type of legal service that's helping clients. And so obviously, this is a model that is beginning to take off overseas. We're learning there's obviously over time, there's been increased desire to examine this and maybe try it out in the United States in, in different uh, bars across, you know, different states. And so just wanted to touch base with you all on that. And uh, you know, was there some element of that that came up in your conversation in terms of incorporating those additional add-ons for legal practice? There was. And I think it's it was a great discussion. Uh, Ralph Baxter had a very salient point, which is, as voters and citizens, we can push to change the political calculus that protects um the sanctity of law firm ownership, if you will. But I think the question that didn't come up is, in the U.S., how does a law firm develop augmentive business models that basically system integrate alternative legal system providers, deft use of technology, to create as much efficiency as they can, given the fact that they can't create an alternative legal services or an ASB like they can in the U.K. or Australia? And I think that there's a huge amount of adaptive room for law firms to do that. And I think companies are going to expect them to do it. Yeah, I think he really captured that well. I mean, a key discussion point, um, we had people from the UK and from Australia talking about how regulatory change there really opened up the model of how you practice law in, in important ways. And so there was substantial discussion about our model of regulation, both under the American Bar Association and state bars, and what are the possibilities for innovation within the constraints of the current models, um, and how changing those models looking at the comparative examples could change what we do. I think a key point that came up in the context of all of that is also 
this question of access to justice, right? Because there are so many people in the United States who need legal services who don't have access to them. And one question is, if you allow for various alternative forms of, of service delivery, could you reach some of those people who we're not reaching right now? I think a core challenge, and this was something I raised during the panel, is that one has to be really careful when one says technology is the answer there, because if, if you're going to use technology to help address access to justice, you also have to deal with the technology gap, which is that really poor people not only often don't have access to legal services that they need, they also don't have the access to the technology that could help them use some of these alternatives always. And so I, I think it's crucial that we think about how we make sure if we're going to use that as a model that we create an access to technology. And that is so true. And I'll tell you, one of the things I love to do is read. And so for the first time in a long time, I went to a brand new sparkling public library in Richmond, Virginia, where I live and got my library card again, like I did as a kid. And what astounded me was the pure number of people there using the computers that they make available and recognizing that most people or a lot of people don't have computers in their home and don't have devices necessarily to access this technology. I was shocked that they had so many computers available for public use and that every station was filled with people working on the computer. It just drove home to me that we get used to having the technology on our lap and our briefcase, but that's not the bigger world. My second to last question uh, for both of you, you know, we've been a little all over the place. Sounds like it was a very broad spectrum of topics uh, discussed. And so back to the original title of the Unpanel, how will technology impact the makeup of law firms? What I'd like each one of you to do is leave us with your favorite takeaways from the discussion to kind of drive the overarching point home. Technology is going to give us a way to recalibrate the mix of people and tools we use to deliver service. Ultimately, the services will still be high quality. The attorneys practicing law will be doing more meaningful work and the technology will be enabling a more cost-effective lower unit price. For me, the key takeaway is is absolutely that, but I think it, a key I mean, there were definitely people who were more pessimistic than he was in the panel about whether the legal industry is capable of evolving in this way. And so for me, a key takeaway is that change is coming and change is here. And I think the crucial question is whether law firms and the law schools that train people for law firms are able to evolve in ways to really respond to the evolving technology and the evolving market needs. Excellent. Well, before we close it out, I just want to give you all an opportunity to leave some contact information in case our listeners want to follow up with you. So uh, where can they reach you, Dean? So I can be reached at Penn State Law and the School of International Affairs. My email address is hmo8 at psu.edu. And Mark? My email address is myacano, that's Y-A-C-A-N-O, at mlaglobal.com. Terrific. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode, but I want to thank our guests for joining us and also our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.